0: Let us pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus does shine fairer and brighter and purer and that he is the light of life who has come into the world, that all people may look to him and be redeemed. Now, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, good morning. You may be seated Let's try that again. Good morning. Good to see all of you. And um, so grateful for Father Jed covering everything in the service last Sunday. I was out of town. Um, his father died on Saturday. I was still um, way out on, in Ohio. And he said he still wants to do the entire service. And I, Father Jed, I am so grateful and thank you for doing that, even in the midst of your grief. And so... Very grateful for that. Um, continuing today in our study from the book of Ephesians, I'd invite you to turn your Bibles or devices to Ephesians chapter 3, focusing on verses 14 through 21 this morning, the concluding verses in Ephesians chapter 3. This portion of Ephesians 3, which we are looking at today, is a prayer which St. Paul offers on behalf of the Ephesian believers. And this prayer really marks the dividing point in the book of Ephesians, because it marks the conclusion of the principles being set forth in Ephesians regarding the essentials of salvation through our God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the emphasis on the essential unity, the genuine unity of all believers in and under Christ's Lordship. And then beginning in chapter four, which we'll be looking at in the weeks to come. And through the end of this epistle, Paul then makes practical application of the God-given principles set forth in chapters 1 through 3. After the the digression that we looked at in the past several weeks when I've preached in verses 2 through 13, where Paul, directed by the Spirit, felt that it was important to emphasize to the Ephesian believers who were really struggling and questioning this, Paul had to emphasize to them that his imprisonment was indeed in accord with God's will. And after doing that, now Paul picks up kind of where he left off, continuing the thought that he began in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 3. And it's important, I think, as we start here, that we notice that verse 1 and verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 3 begin with precisely the same words, indicating that Paul now is diving back into the main focus of what he has written. He begins both verses with these words. For this reason. For this reason. Additionally, Paul, as Paul prays in his writing, he describes his posture in prayer as kneeling. Look at verse 14 with me. So that we, excuse me, wrong Wrong chapter. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. When we look to Scripture, the Bible describes a number of physical postures for prayer, including the lifting up of hands in prayer and standing. But the posture of kneeling involves ascribing or magnifying the honor which is due to God alone. In Luke chapter 22, verse 41, we read of Jesus falling on his knees in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. In 1 Kings 8.54, we read that King Solomon knelt as he dedicated the temple. And in 1 Kings 19.18, it recounts the 7,000 faithful men who refused to bow their knee to Baal because they would only ascribe that honor and that Glory to God and God alone, to the one true and living God. Perhaps here Paul's kneeling is intended to emphasize the truth which was prophetically spoken by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 45 where we read, by myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And then in that same theme in Philippians chapter 2, Paul himself writes, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. It's often said to you in a a simplified way, which isn't 100% accurate, but it still conveys the concept in Anglican worship that we kneel to pray, we sit to learn, And we stand to praise. And again, that's not a hard and fast rule, but it it conveys this imagery. This idea that every knee should bow at the name of Jesus is why even though it's not kneeling, many priests in the Anglican world, including Father Jed and myself, when we name the name Jesus in, in prayer or in reading or reciting the liturgy, give a small bow or nod to our head. Sometimes it's almost unnoticeable, but we do that acknowledging this fact and this truth that truly at the name, every, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and to, in a simple way, ascribe to him, That honor and glory which is His alone. While there are many, there are a number of biblical postures for prayer, kneeling is especially significant because it is a proper posture of submission and it's a universally recognized posture of ascribing honor. Now, let me say this to be clear I recognize that there are some among us who are not physically able to kneel, and that is okay. God understands that. But every one of us can have the posture of kneeling in our hearts as we in our hearts bow before the Lord and ascribe to him the honor and glory due our name, due his name. After looking at Paul's posture of submission in prayer, which serves as a model for each of us, we now need to look at the content of his prayer. And the content of his prayer here in Ephesians has application for you and me, for the church of Jesus Christ today, just as much, hear me, just as much as it did for the Ephesian church almost 2,000 years ago. And there are two key points of emphasis in Paul's prayer on which we'll focus this morning. The first is this. Paul prays that they, the Ephesians, and subsequently us as well, that they will more fully comprehend Christ's love that they will more fully comprehend Christ's love. So Paul here in verse 16 begins to describe the content of his prayer. Throughout Ephesians, Paul gives repeated and great emphasis to God's wealth poured out in the lives of believers. God's wealth poured out into the lives of believers. And to be clear, so we don't go go down the road of heresy. What he speaks of here is not material wealth, acquiring stuff in this world, but it's spiritual wealth and blessings. And all that Paul prays for the Ephesians flows from God. In Paul's words here, according to the riches of his glory. And that should be a reminder to us as we dive into this text here as well. That all, note, all spiritual blessings and all spiritual graces and all spiritual strength in our lives flows from God and his great riches and in his mercy. God forbid that we should ever take credit or somehow seemingly diminish God's glory by attributing some of these things in any way to ourselves. The words of verse 16 grant you to be strengthened are in the passive voice, just like we talked about the passive voice a few weeks ago in, in terms of speaking to those beings in the heavenly realms. And we said that God does that through the example of the church that he has established. It's not in that instance the church is speaking to them. Well, here in verse 16, we see the passive voice again. And the idea of the passive voice here, which is not as strong in English as it is in Greek, it reinforces that it is God who gives strength. It is God who gives strength to you and me. Strength, true spiritual strength is never self-endowed. It is, as Paul says here, through his spirit, through God, the Holy Spirit. I like the quote of the late Christian writer, Watchman nee, where he says this, To have God do his own work through us even once is better than a lifetime of human striving. And then the late Koi Temboom described it this way. I have in my hand a glove. The glove cannot do anything by itself. But when my hand is in it, I can do many things. True, it is not the glove, but my hand in the glove that acts we are gloves. It is the Holy Spirit in us who is the hand, who does the job. We have to make room for the hand so that every finger is filled. And to go off script for a moment, when we read of Gideon, the book of Judges, and you read that Gideon was clothed with the spirit of God. When you look at, and I didn't see this until I took Hebrew in seminary and my seminary professor pointed it out that the actual imagery in the Hebrew there is not that the spirit clothed Gideon, but the idea is that the spirit put on clothes of Gideon. So it's very much along with this imagery of the glove. It's as if Gideon in his earthly body was that glove and the spirit of God filled him up from the inside to do that work. It's God doing his good and gracious work in and through us. Paul also comes back to the theme we saw in Ephesians chapter one, verses three through three through 14 that we talked about early on, that our salvation is wholly Trinitarian. The fullness of God as father, son and Holy spirit is at work. Paul prays to the father that they may have strength through the spirit So that Christ, the son, may dwell in their hearts through faith. And as we are strengthened through the spirit by faith, something wonderful takes place. Because we become deeply rooted and grounded in God's great love. Look at verses 17 through 19 with me. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to be clear, when... It talks about dwelling here. This passage is not talking about the indwelling of the spirit that happens at the moment, at the time of salvation, as is recorded in Romans 8, 10, and many other biblical texts. Rather, as a number of commentators, including Howard Hohner in his wonderful commentary in Ephesians, says, this is that Christ may be at home in us. That is, at the very center of or deeply rooted in believers' lives. Christ must become the controlling factor in attitudes and conduct. When we are rooted, we are firmly fixed in Christ. Those roots go down deep and they continue to go deeper and deeper and deeper so that Christ may be at home in us, so that he more and more becomes the controlling factor, the controlling factor in all that we are and all that we do, in our attitudes, in our conduct. Being grounded carries a sense of having a sure, secure, unshakable foundation. And this only comes, brothers and sisters, through God at work in you and me. And the result of all this, we become more and more firmly rooted and grounded in God's love. In God's love. And that poses the question, I think, for me and for each of you. How are we doing with this? How are we doing? Is our interior life a hospitable dwelling place for God? Is the interior of our lives a place that has lots of room for more and more and more and more of God to work? Or are we allowing clutter in that house to crowd out that space that belongs to God alone? How deeply rooted is the love of Christ in us? Are we growing in that love? And then to ask ourselves, is Christ becoming the controlling factor the controlling factor in our attitudes and conduct in an ever-increasing way so that we make room in the home of our interior lives for him. The connecting thread throughout this entire prayer is the love of Christ. Through the Spirit, we are strengthened with power in our inner being, and God does dwell in our heart. And heart here speaks of all of our being. That was the ancient understanding, the entirety of our being, not so much just emotions, which is often the association with heart in our day. This is not about emotions. This is not just about feelings. This is about the entirety of who God has made and continues to make us to be. And as we come to more fully grasp the length and the height and the depth. In other words, the magnitude of that which can never be fully grasped by finite human hearts and minds. We grow, though, in our understanding of God's incredible love for us in Christ. All that we have, all that we are, is by God's good Gracious and kind hand. God's love for us in Christ that accomplished our salvation. God's love in Christ that accomplished for us something that could never be accomplished by any human effort or human strength. We need to reflect. We need to remain. We need to abide in this great love of Christ for us. Romans 5.5 reminds us And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love has been poured into our hearts. More fully comprehending and grasping this love, which is indeed itself a work of the Holy Spirit and being deeply rooted in it, has profound ramifications for you and me and for every person who is truly in Christ. And that brings us to our second and concluding point that Paul prays that they and we may be filled with the fullness of God. Verse 19, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is St. Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. To be filled and to know God's power in this specific context here in Ephesians 3 is in order for you and me to more fully know Christ's love. This is the desired result of Paul's fervent prayer here. Growth in Christ's love, hear me, growth in Christ's love has tangible results. It will produce in you and me this ongoing, self-denying love which Jesus himself perfectly demonstrates. That means we will grow in that type of love which is only seen and and exemplified to us through Jesus Christ. A love that is ongoing and growing and unending. A love that is self-denying. That puts the the interest of others before our own interests. That puts the glory of God and the advance of his kingdom before self. And all of this, again, we cannot accomplish in our strength, but it will happen. It will happen supernaturally in God's people if Christ abides in us and we abide in him. And this most fully develops together, not in a vacuum, not in isolation, but in community, in community as brothers and sisters in Christ's. A community means not just in association with certain believers, our little clique, or certain groups of believers that maybe we're a little more comfortable with here within the church, or only with certain demographics of believers. This is not about personal preferences. It's not about socioeconomic status or education level or career or employment status. Ethnicity, race, intellectual capabilities, and I could go on and on and on. You see, this was the miracle of Ephesus. And it was indeed a miracle, that which was impossible in the natural, where you had pagan Gentiles saved out of pagan lives. And brought into the life, new life in Christ. And you had Jews who had come to faith in Christ. These two groups that for centuries had been in enmity with one another. And then the one leading the charge in all of this. The apostle Paul. The the Jewish Pharisee persecutor of the church. And all of them brought together in one body. Jews and Gentiles together. One new creation in Christ Jesus. Where there is neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, but all are one through Christ Jesus. I think this has profound application for us in our immediate context and the things that God is calling us to as a church. Because The people that God is leading us to in our community, they may not look like us. They may not talk like us. They may have different cultural perspectives than we do. They will have different ethnicities than we do. And yet God is calling us to reach them with the good news of the gospel and to lay aside personal preferences, to to shed those things, that somehow we attach to who we are or identity as Christians have nothing to do with the gospel and really have to do with cultural preferences. And God is calling us to reach them so that he can do the same kind of beautiful and good and gracious work here in ever greater measure, just like he did in Ephesus, where he brought groups together that seemed completely irreconcilable in the flesh, but by God, and by the power of his Holy Spirit and the redeeming work of Christ who makes all things new, he brought them together as one body in unity for his glory, rooted and grounded in Christ's great love for them that was now shed abroad in their hearts for one another. The essence of Paul's prayer, God's heart for us, that we may more fully comprehend Christ's incredible love for us, and that we may be filled with the fullness of God to live out in real, tangible, and practical ways the truth of his great love in our lives as God's people, together as his new creations in Christ's. And then Paul concludes his prayer with these words, giving glory to God for this great truth which will be my concluding prayer this morning. Verses 20 through 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.